0: Our Heavenly Father, you have promised that as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth to make it sprout and flourish, so also your word will not return to empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So also we pray that you will accomplish your purposes in our hearts and in our lives this morning through the preaching of your word Work within us by your word and spirit. And so teach us, grow us, sanctify us. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter one. We'll be looking at the first five verses, as I said earlier, starting this new Sermon series on this book, the book of Acts, uh, page 909 in your pew Bibles. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs Just about 2,000 years ago, a new religious movement sprang onto the world scene. It emerged seemingly from nowhere, from the cultural backwater of Judea. Within a few decades, churches had been planted in many of the major cities of the Roman Empire. But that was just the beginning. It maintained an explosive growth rate decade after decade for centuries, to the point that Christianity was transforming the life and the culture of the whole Roman Empire. The sociologist and historian Rodney Stark in his book The Rise of Christianity argues that Emperor Constantine's conversion in 312 AD it was not a cause of Christianity's rise but rather a response to its exponential growth and progress. The question this provokes is what caused Christianity to multiply, to flourish, to take over the very world that was so opposed to it? What caused it to overrun the very empire that murdered its founder on a cross? How did it so quickly, as it says in Acts chapter 17, turn the world upside down? And we look at our society which has been so deeply shaped by Christianity and yet is now turning its back upon it, or at least people are turning away from their common conceptions and misconceptions of Christianity. We wonder, could this trend reverse itself in our days? What would that look like? How could that be accomplished? How was it done the first time? How did Christianity conquer the Roman Empire, this pagan empire, For these answers to these questions, we want to go to the source. Go back to the beginning, to the authoritative history of how from just a handful of disciples, Jesus Christ built his church. He established it. He grew it till it reached even to the ends of the earth. And so this morning, we begin our study of the book of Acts. I'm so excited. To begin this study with all of you I sincerely believe the Lord has so much to teach us here now you may remember that the last gospel we studied as a church was the gospel of Luke it was pastor Ron's final morning sermon series before his retirement his official retirement as pastor and here we have Luke's second volume you see it here in the first two verses the I'm calling the preface this morning In the first book, O Theophilus, the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, even though Luke's name is not written here in the preface, it's actually not found anywhere in the book. The universal consensus from the earliest records is that the author of both volumes is Paul's traveling companion, his close coworker, affectionately known to many as Dr. Luke. That's because Paul identifies him as the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. And we know that he was Paul's last remaining companion, helping him, tending to him as he knew the end was drawing near when he wrote his final letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy. We know how extensively he traveled with Paul from the very book of Acts itself, because there are several sections where instead of simply reporting, Paul went here, Paul did this, Paul went there, he switches to using the pronoun, we, we went here, we went there. These are clearly the sections where Luke was himself accompanying Paul. Now, what do we know about Luke? He was himself a Gentile. Therefore, he was not actually an eyewitness follower of Jesus. But we learn about his historical method from the preface to volume one, his gospel. And that actually serves as a preface to the two-volume work, a preface to this volume as well. And so there we read in Luke 1, 1 through 4, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all the things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Here we see Luke's method how he did it. He carefully interviewed the eyewitnesses. Everything he wrote down he come from first-hand sources. He did it and then he wrote it down in an Orderly chronological accounts. And he said, This is my purpose, so that you can have certainty concerning these things, so that you can know that they are true. Now, it's true that many have questioned, many have critiqued Luke as a historian. And yet, time after time, as these things have been checked, as these things have been examined, Luke has been vindicated. One well-known example is British historian and archaeologist Sir William Ramsey. He was trained in the late 19th century in the German schools of higher criticism. These are the liberals who, who question everything. And he started out his career assuming that these educated elites must be correct. As they taught, Luke was written in the late second century, far too late, a hundred years after the fact, and so it was filled with myths, filled with errors, filled with falsehoods. But as he investigated, as he did his research, as he compared the details in Luke's accounts with other contemporary accounts, and as he dug up the artifacts and compared everything, his views changed. In the end, he wrote this conclusion, I take the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in its trustworthiness. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian, and they will stand the keenest scrutiny and the harshest treatment. Of course, we as believers should say, we expect nothing less from the inspired, inerrant word of God. But Luke, as a man, as a historian, he did his homework. You see in the preface of both Luke and Acts, also that Luke addresses his book to one man in particular. You see the name, Theophilus. Now some have speculated that because his name can be translated, Theo meaning God, Phyllis coming from the word for to love, it could be translated lover of God, that this is a fictitious person. And so Luke is simply writing to all those who love God. But this speculation is highly improbable. In the gospel, Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus, the address one would use for a high-ranking Roman official. This man is most likely Luke's patron, his sponsor. And yet Luke writes, as he says, to assure him of the things he has been taught. But certainly he knows that Theophilus would not be the only one to read these things. He would be the one to read them, but then also to publish the writing so that many could read and benefit from what Luke Has written here. And so that brings us to the question what is the purpose of the book of Acts? Why is Luke writing these things? Not just the gospel, he says, so that you may be certain, but the whole book of Acts. What is he writing it for? Is it merely a history, a recounting of what happened in the early church? If we look at the timeline, we can see that it covers the span of about 30 years from Christ's resurrection in. 30 AD to Paul's imprisonment in Rome in the early 60s. But this is far more than just a history. Some have said that it is a book about preaching. It's full of sermons by the apostles. The longest sermon in the book is the sermon by the church's first martyr, Stephen. 19 of the 28 chapters of the book actually contain sermons or addresses. And so we learn so much about the central message that the apostles preached... But this is more than just a book about preaching. Others have said that God has given us here a handbook on evangelism, on missions, especially how the gospel crosses cultures. As we see the gospel moving out from Jerusalem, then going into Samaria, then to the Gentiles from Asia to Europe, even reaching into the heart of Rome. And many books have been written on this topic, on all that we can learn from Acts, how we can apply it for our evangelism, for church planting, for cross-cultural missions today. I've, I've read some of those books. I've benefited from that. All those things are true. But Acts is more than a handbook for evangelism and missions. Others have said, this is a book about the Holy Spirit, You can see that already in our passage before us. As Jesus commands his disciples, wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see the powerful working of the Holy Spirit as a theme running all throughout the book. This is a book more than just about the Holy Spirit. So what is the central theme running through this book? What is this book all about? Luke says it right here. In verse 1, he says the first book, his gospel, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And therefore implied is that this book is going to be about all that Jesus continues to do and teach after he has ascended to his heavenly throne. Don't be misled if your Bible says at the top of the page, but the title of this book is The Acts of the Apostles. That's true to a certain extent, but Luke didn't actually give a title to his book. Now, we don't know who gave it that title. But that was a, cent- a title that was eventually added about a century or so after it was written. The Acts of fill-in-the-blank, that was a well-known genre in ancient times. There were other well-known books like The Acts of Alexander the Great." or the Acts of Caesar Augustus. So someone thought, they looked at the book and said, let's call it the Acts of the Apostles. Now it's true that the Apostles are prominent actors in the book, but whoever gave this book that title, they were a bit short-sighted. They missed the main character in the book, the main actor who is behind it all. Because it is Christ who sends out the apostles as his witnesses. It is Christ who baptizes them in the Holy Spirit with power. It is Christ who said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Luke's gospel records all that Jesus began to do and teach, part one of his work and mission. And of course, that was of critical importance, for it included his life, his teaching, his miracles, his atoning death on the cross for our sins, and his resurrection three days later. But as important as all that is, we should not overlook that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was referring to his satisfying the wrath of God on the cross, but his work, all his work was not finished. It was just beginning. And so after his resurrection, And continuing on after his ascension, Jesus Christ continues to work. He continues to do and to teach by the power of his out spirit through the apostles and through others. His work continues and Acts is recording that work. And so we can come up with a far better title for this book. It would be the Acts of the Ascended Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through his chosen apostles. We can take it even one step further. There's another theme in the book of Acts, and that's the sovereignty of God the Father. For example, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23, where there's many times when people come to faith in the book, and it's always pointing to the sovereignty of God. For example, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, Acts 13, 48. And so with this theme in mind, we actually have a title for the the book that puts in view our triune God, the acts of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ as sovereignly decreed by God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit through his chosen apostles. Perhaps that's an overly lengthy title. It wouldn't fit very well on the title page in your Bibles. But the point is that the purpose of this book is to give all the glory to God alone through his son, Jesus Christ. We never want to lose sight of that, that this book is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you miss that, you've lost the thread. What is the other implication of this? This means that Jesus Christ, who is still on his heavenly throne, who is still ruling and reigning today, is still building the church even now. The end of the book of Acts is not the end of the story. It's not the end of his work. And that means you are still a part of this story today. You are part of the great living temple that Christ is building. Here we see him laying the foundation. And today we are part of the work that he continues to do as he is building his church. So far, we've looked at the first two verses, the preface. Now let's see how this all begins. Christ's instruction to his apostles, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here we see that there were 40 days between Jesus's resurrection and his ascension. And these 40 days are really the link that binds together Luke's first and second volumes. There's an overlap here. They're partly described in both the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. And here we're told that during these 42, 40 days, Jesus focused on two main things. First, he focused on proving that he was, that he is alive. And this is of Utmost importance. Christianity stakes everything on the fact that Jesus Christ is risen. He is alive. And note here, it doesn't say, you note know here that Jesus, he, he didn't just show up once and say, Here I am, I'm risen, and that's, that's the end of the story. Due to uh, what some call our chronological snobbery, Many modern people think ancient people, they were gullible. gullible. They were easily fooled. Either that or they were just superstitious. They gave into magical thinking. Oh, someone rose from the dead. Sure thing, happens all the time. No problem. No, that's not how it worked. They knew that dead people stayed dead. In fact, we should realize they were Well, acquainted with death far more than we are today, where we hide death off in the corner, in the morgue, in the hospital, in the nursing home. We do our best to pretend that it doesn't exist. It's true that Jews, the great majority of them, all save the Sadducees, they did believe in the resurrection of the dead, but they believed in the general resurrection, a resurrection of all the dead on the last day, which clearly had not occurred they never expected one person to spontaneously rise from the dead in the middle of history that did not fit into their expectations and so in the resurrection accounts you find Jesus had to repeatedly prove himself who he is that he is alive that he is truly human we saw this in the passage that we read earlier in Luke 24 his disciples are afraid of him they think he's a spirit, a ghostly apparition. Is this really true? So we read Luke twenty-four thirty-eight. He says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He had to prove it to them. Then you see what he does next. He takes some fish. He eats it to further show he has a real, a substantive body. He can interact with the world around him. He has all the regular functions of a real body, including the ability to eat. Now, perhaps you can identify with the disciples here. Perhaps if you were there, you would have had your doubts as well. But Jesus doesn't just prove it with his appearances. He also proves it from the scriptures from the whole Old Testament, that everything that has happened to him is suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Everything has come to pass exactly as it was prophesied beforehand. And he says, now all that remains is for the Holy Spirit to be poured out exactly as that also was prophesied. But here in, in Luke 24, that's just one appearance. We see that Jesus appeared over and over again during these 40 days, repeatedly. And then Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15 that once he even appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Paul says, most of them are still living. You can go and talk to them. They can confirm what I'm saying. Now, this is the definitive proof of the gospel, of who Jesus was, of what he had accomplished, that he had risen from the dead. There are many religions in this world, but only one of them is founded by a man who has risen from the dead. It's not just that he has risen, but that he lives to this day. Of all the other religions, their founders have all died. Often it's even a, a religious ritual to go, to go visit the grave. You can go visit Muhammad's grave, for example. But Jesus Christ, he continues to live. Other religions sustain themselves merely by the the teachings of their founders. You just follow their teachings. You just do what their teacher said. Follow their path, and you will do well. But Christianity is completely different. It's totally dependent on the historical reality of who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and the fact that he is risen. That is the gospel we proclaim. The gospel that his followers have proclaimed since the beginning. Now, if only his enemies could have pointed to the, his body in the grave. They could have stopped this whole movement in its tracks. But that was the problem. There was no body to be found. Everything from the stone rolled away to the folded grave clothes, the witness of the angels, the women of all people who were those first witnesses, and then all the witnesses... Who could testify? It all proves that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and this is the proof of all that he had claimed, that He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, come to lay down his life for his sheep." P.B. B. Warfield writes, "Christ himself deliberately staked his whole claim to the credit of men upon his resurrection. When asked for a sign, he pointed to this sign as his single and sufficient credential. What is the alternative? As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But Christ has in fact been raised from the dead and we rest in this truth. We rejoice in this truth. We have the witness of the apostles and of the scriptures, all the historical evidence on top of this. And on top of this all, we have the Holy Spirit himself confirming it all in our hearts. So first, Christ presented himself alive, as it says, with many proofs. And the second thing that Jesus focused on during these 40 days was teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God I want to just touch on this briefly this morning because we'll focus on it in a bit more depth next time. But the kingdom of God was Jesus' central message all throughout his ministry. As he said in Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus came for this purpose, to preach the good news of the kingdom For he was the long-awaited Messiah, the king, who had come to usher in the kingdom of God. John Stott writes, The kingdom of God is his rule, set up in the lives of his people by his spirit. It is spread by witnesses, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, and by the work of the spirit, not by force of arms, political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. Simply put, it is a spiritual kingdom, and Christ is continually delivering people out of the kingdom of this world and into his marvelous kingdom of light. As we look at the book of Acts, it begins with this theme of how Christ was teaching them about his kingdom and then sending them out to proclaim this kingdom. And while this term, the kingdom of God, does not come up as often in Acts, it's the term is used 32 times in Luke, but only five times in the book of Acts. I think it's significant that it actually bookends the book. It's here at the beginning, and then it comes up again at the end. It's used twice in the final chapter. And so we read in Acts 28:23 as Paul is, is witnessing, as he's a, a prisoner in Rome, it says, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus and the law of Moses and from the prophets. And then we have the final verses of the book. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so when you look at this this whole book, you have the various characters of the book of Acts. Peter is the, the most prominent character in the, the first half of the book up to chapter 12. And then he sort of fades away. He, he sort of disappears from the narrative. And then Paul, he's he's the most prominent character of after that point. But at the end, you know, the book's coming then. He's going to fade away. But the only thing that lasts forever is the kingdom of God. Jesus will rule. He will reign until he destroys every other ruler and authority and power until all his enemies will be put under his feet. The kingdom of God lasts forever. That's all I'll say about that for today. We'll look at this kingdom of God in more depth next week. And so we've seen what Jesus does for these 40 days. He proves himself alive. He teaches about the kingdom of God. Finally, this morning, we want to see Jesus' command in verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And here we see Jesus's two-part command to his disciples, do not depart, but rather wait. And Jesus has been training his, his apostles, he's Given them the great commission, go make disciples of all nations. They're probably chomping at the bit to go get out there, to go tell others. But instead of sending them immediately, he says, just stay here. Wait for a little while longer. Why? You cannot be eyewitnesses, you cannot go out, you cannot preach until you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, until you have been baptized with power from on high. Here we see another connection back to Luke's former volume, for it was back in Luke 3.16, where John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than, than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, this prophecy of John is on the verge of being fulfilled. And Jesus is saying, You need to stay here. You need to wait. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke 24 49. How long will it be? We actually know that, in fact, it will be just 10 days between Christ's ascension on the 40th day and Pentecost. It's just 50 days after Passover. And what will. The gift of the Holy Spirit mean for them. Jesus gives the most detailed explanation of the sending of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel, chapters 14 to 16. And I want to read just a few excerpts uh, from his discourse there. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Here we see how crucial the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, for through the Spirit, Jesus continues to speak. He continues to teach his apostles. Here is a confirmation of exactly what we saw in verses 1 and 2. The Gospel of Luke was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. But once the apostles receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to teach them what they were not yet ready to hear beforehand. And through them, he's going to continue to get that message out to the world. And those things that they receive from the Spirit, those things are preserved for us here in the book of Acts, as well as in the other things they wrote in their letters the apostolic teaching written down for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that the Holy Spirit reveals. But the other theme that we have in the books of Acts is that the Holy Spirit also empowers. As it says here in verse 8, Acts 1-8, you will see receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this theme, it goes all throughout the book. The power with which Christ's apostles both proclaim the word and are also enabled to do signs and wonders which confirm that which they proclaim. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all, Acts 4.33. When Peter is brought before the high council in Acts 4, and they're asked, by what power or what name did you do this? Did you heal this man? Now it's true, he healed him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Peter gives his response, it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit to to speak and to respond. But it's interesting. He doesn't say it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. He points through the Spirit to Jesus Christ and he says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you. Well, Acts 4.10. Why does he do this? It's just as Jesus said of the Spirit in John 16.14. He will glorify me. And so the Holy Spirit is always pointing to Christ, shining the light on Christ that he might receive all the glory. He is the Spirit of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit always works to empower Christ's servants and to bring all the glory back to to Jesus Christ. And so we see how Jesus commands his disciples, stay, wait in Jerusalem until you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you, believer today, are, you have received this very same Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, that you might be his witnesses. It's now nearly 2,000 years later, And yet still today, as I said earlier, we are still a part of this same story, each and every one of us. Jesus Christ is still on his throne in heaven. He is still building his church by the power of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Do you have this in mind as you serve him each and every day? The story is often told of Christopher Wren, he was the great architect who, after the the fire, the great fire that consumed the city of London, he was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. One day on the job site, he saw three bricklayers, and he went up to them, and he asked each of them, what are you doing? The first bricklayer said, I'm a bricklayer. I'm laying bricks. The second said, I'm a builder. I'm building a wall. The third, who was by far the most productive of the three, he replied with a gleam in his eye, I'm a cathedral builder. I'm building a great cathedral to the Almighty. All three were doing the same work. The third man worked with a greater purpose because he had the bigger picture in view. The bigger picture in Acts is that this is far more than just mere history. It's not just a few clever men who persuaded others to follow their inspirational preaching and teaching. No, this is an account of Jesus Christ as he is working through his Holy Spirit to build his church through the work of his chosen apostles according to the eternal plan of God the Father. In each and every passage that we study, we're going to be looking and asking, what is Christ doing here? What is God's greater plan for his church that he is unfolding here for his glory? And we know that his plan continues today. It continues and it includes you, all of you, brothers and sisters. And so I wanna ask you, do you have this in mind as you go about your days? Do you have the bigger picture in mind? Or do you see yourself as just a bricklayer? just muddling along through your life, doing your daily work with no greater purpose in mind than to make it through the day? Or can you say with your head held high, I am a servant of the king. I am a living stone in his temple. I am indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And he is the one who empowers me and strengthens me to go about the work of his advancing his kingdom, of building his cathedral on the earth. And so, brothers and sisters, it is the risen and the ascended Christ who is himself building his church. We see the beginning of his work here in the book of Acts, and we have the great pleasure, the great delight of continuing to participate in it in our days as he works through us until Christ's work is complete and he returns in glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning. We give you thanks and praise as we reflect on Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Savior, knowing that we have received an overflow of grace and mercy in him. We thank you for your Holy Spirit poured out upon the church, poured out into our hearts your wonderful gift, that we might have our eyes opened that we might receive a new heart and a new spirit, that we might grow in faith and love, that we might be convicted and sanctified and empowered to be your witnesses. We pray, Father, that you would continue to work within us by your spirit, that you would continue to work through us, that your kingdom would advance as Christ continues to build his church on this earth, all for your greater glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.